Most Jews have heard of the prophet Elijah. Elijah makes a cryptic appearance at Passover every year. Towards the end of the traditional Seder meal, we open our front doors to welcome him into our home, hoping that he'll be bringing news of our redemption. We pour a cup of wine for him to drink and then wait intently for him to drink it. But here's the thing. When we open our door, we're not expecting an actual person to walk in, but instead an invisible spirit. Because while Elijah is not alive and therefore not physically present, he's also, well, not quite dead. So a lot of Jews know who Elijah is from Passover, but they don't really know who Elijah is beyond this Passover appearance at our front door to drink our wine. Not unlike, as my parents say, their adult children. Over these last several episodes, we've talked about two kinds of leaders that the Israelites had. The first was the judges, during the period when the Israelites were gradually settling in Canaan and forming their own distinct national identity. And then there were the kings, like Saul and David and Solomon. The third kind of leader was the prophet. The Hebrew Bible lists a whole bunch of them. Some are considered major, others are minor, and there are different kinds of prophets who are interested in different things. For centuries, they are a major feature of Israelite culture, and they played a big role in the development of Judaism. And we know that several of them really were real people who existed. The judges were charismatic warriors. The kings were kings. And the prophets were moralizers, constantly admonishing the kings and the people to behave this way and not that way, to incur either the favor or the wrath of Yahweh, the God of Israel. In the early years, prophets were associated with political figures. King Saul had the prophet Samuel foretelling his rule. King David had the prophet Nathan badgering him about adultery. And then there's King Ahab, ruler of the kingdom of Israel in the mid-800s BCE. King Ahab had a foreign wife, a violent Phoenician woman named Jezebel, who insisted on the worship of her Canaanite gods over that of Yahweh. This did not sit well with Elijah. So what did Elijah do? Well, he pretty well single-handedly saved monotheism. And for us, he's our introduction to a whole new set of characters and our exploration of the first thousand years or so of Jewish history, the prophets. So I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. It was the kind of wedding that the New York Times Sunday section could only dream of. The king of Israel and his non-Israelite Phoenician bride. Their union was immortalized in Psalm 45, which sang how the king loved righteousness and hated wickedness and had been chosen by his God. And his new queen, whose beauty had aroused the king, dress embroidered with gold, the wealthiest people of the land courting her favor with gifts, as the psalm promises them fame for all generations. Apparently, they were so famous that the psalm didn't feel the need to mention their names. Biblical scholars have been wondering for centuries who the happy couple was. Clearly, it was a king of Israel marrying a princess of Tyre, one of the most powerful and richest of the Phoenician cities located in what is today Lebanon. Some scholars have speculated that it was King Ahab and Jezebel, although that's a contested viewpoint and ultimately we don't know who it was. But even if it wasn't about King Ahab, what the psalm records was probably pretty close to the real thing. Ahab was king of Israel, the northern half of the two Israelite kingdoms, and the larger, richer, and more powerful of the two. 
He reigned for about 20 years, from about 870 BCE to 850. And we know that he was a real person. The Assyrian king at the time wrote about waging war across Syria and encountering a coalition of forces against him, including one King Ahab of Israel. It was a decisive battle that the Assyrians won, but at great cost, and curiously, it's never mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. But it demonstrates that, at the very least, the kingdom of Israel was a power to be reckoned with during the 800s. Little nobodies don't get carved into stone by the Assyrians. It had begun under Ahab's father, King Omri, who I talked about last episode. Under Omri, Israel had expanded its territory, its cities grew, its economy prospered, and he built a new capital at a place called Samaria. He was so successful that the Assyrians and others referred to the kingdom of Israel as the House of Omri, even after his dynasty had ended. As part of Israel's expansion, the Hebrew Bible records Omri marrying off his son, Ahab, to Jezebel. It's unclear whether she really existed. A royal seal was found with a name on it that could be hers, but some crucial letters are missing, so it's uncertain. Still, Ahab was real, and he certainly had a wife, or probably several, and it's not unusual that one of them would have been a non-Israelite. As we all know, royals often marry other households in order to unite certain kingdoms for political, economic, and military gain, and the Israelite kings were no different. After Omri died, Ahab continued his father's policies, building up his cities and even making peace with the other Israelite kingdom, Judah, down in the south. Together, they controlled the ancient King's Highway, which meant that any trade happening between Arabia and the rest of the Near East had to go through Israelite territory. Very lucrative. And we find archaeological evidence for all this. But although nothing we've described is in any way unusual for the ancient kings, the later biblical writers weren't having it. Ahab and Jezebel offered the writers an excellent opportunity to score two theological points with one stone, the primacy of Yahweh as the one and only Israelite God, and the primacy of the prophet as the true voice of the people for justice, human dignity, and a reminder of the covenant. Far away from the kingdom of Israel, out in what is today the country of Jordan, a man named Elijah sat at his table, hate-reading the local newspaper's wedding section. He was especially irked by the royal nuptials, the entitled couple with their perfect photography and way-too-cute story of how they met. Elijah heard the voice of God, Yahweh, telling him to go to Ahab and lay down punishment. So he did. His opening shot was telling Ahab that for his sins, Israel would be afflicted with a drought so severe that not even dewdrops would form in the morning. It wasn't the marriage that was so terrible in the eyes of Elijah, but what happened afterwards. The Bible writes that Jezebel came into the Israelite royal house with a violent agenda, expel Yahweh from the kingdom and replace him with her god, the Canaanite god Baal. Now again, it's not unusual that in marrying a foreign wife, the king would make allowances for her to worship her own god. Ahab did this, building a temple to Baal in the capital city, Samaria. But Jezebel wasn't satisfied. She brought in all her own people, destroyed Yahweh's temples, and murdered so many of Yahweh's followers that only a hundred remained. Her campaign of repression was so successful that the Israelites themselves were ambivalent about which god they wanted to follow, Yahweh or Baal. Ahab not only didn't interfere in all this, but he seemed to approve of his wife's purge. The Bible was clear with its judgment of his rule. 
And Ahab, son of Omri, did what was displeasing to the Lord more than all who preceded him. This was one wicked king. But Elijah realized that the person he needed to deal with was not the loser king of Israel, but his deviously evil queen. So Elijah challenged her prophets of Baal to the equivalent of a theological duel. The deal was this. Elijah bet the priests of Baal that their god couldn't light a fire to make an animal sacrifice upon an altar, but Yahweh could. They all met on Mount Carmel, which today is the city of Haifa in Israel. Altars were built, animals slaughtered for the sacrifice, all the rituals performed, and inevitably, Baal couldn't get a fire going. But Elijah's prayers were heard, and Yahweh sent forth a raging inferno. The priests of Baal were humiliated. Jezebel was enormously pissed. She orders Elijah killed, so he makes a run for it. He goes to a place that no Israelite had set foot in hundreds of years. Indeed, says the Hebrew Bible, he is the only Israelite to ever return to this sacred spot. Elijah goes to Mount Sinai. Prophecy in the Hebrew Bible is complicated. There are different kinds of prophets. They perform different functions. They live at different times. But here's the essence. Don't think of them as people who can see the future, although a couple of them do have that ability. Prophets are the intermediaries between God and people or between God and the king. They're not priests performing rituals. They are messengers. They relay divine messages to people and they can advocate to God on behalf of humanity. The biblical historian Marx V. Brettler points out that prophets are part of the belief systems in the ancient Near East, and they existed long before the Israelites. Brettler writes that ancient peoples believed the divine will can be apparent to us if we know where and how to perceive it. There are a number of ways to do that, but for Israel, prophecy was the most important way. Thus, the prophets serve an essential function in ancient society, one that's really difficult for us to fully appreciate in today's modern world. We don't have messengers between us and God anymore, although I can think of a few U.S. senators who would disagree. But by serving as intermediaries with God, the prophets ensure that we can understand what God wants and what God doesn't want. What we don't know is why the Israelites were so keen on prophecy. Perhaps they got it from the Mesopotamians. Perhaps it was a regional belief shared by both Israel and its neighbors. We just don't really know. In the coming centuries, the prophets will be mostly addressing the people. But at this point, here in the 800s BCE, the prophets tend to be relaying messages directly to the king. We saw Elijah telling Ahab about the coming drought. And Elijah is also a miracle worker, which some, but not all, the prophets can do. In the midst of his feud with Ahab, Jezebel, and the priests of Baal, Elijah is instructed by God to visit an elderly widow. She and her son are starving from lack of food. Do not worry, Elijah tells her, for God will provide enough to eat. And sure enough, God does. But then the widow's son takes ill and dies, and the woman lashes out at Elijah for daring to bring death while a guest in her home. Elijah took the lifeless boy from his mother, brought him upstairs, and laid him on the bed. The Bible says that Elijah stretched out over the child three times, beseeching God to return his life. The boy awakened. The widow says to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is truly in your mouth. 
This is the first time that resurrection is mentioned in the Bible. So Elijah stands out amongst the prophets as particularly close to God, as imbued with a wide range of gifts and powers, second only really to Moses. But prophecy can be a lonely task, and it was especially for Elijah. Fleeing the wrath of Jezebel and deeply frustrated with the Israelites' embrace of Baal, Elijah trekked out into the wilderness alone, towards the mountain of God that none had visited since Moses. We find him cowering in a dark cave, hoping for death, when the mighty presence of God comes to get him. God says to Elijah, come out from your cave and stand on the mountain before the Lord. A terrible wind blew, so powerful that it split mountains and shattered rocks, but Elijah did not see God in the wind. Then came an earthquake, but God was not there either. Then a raging fire, but still the divine presence did not appear. But then, after the wind and the earthquake and the fire, silence, a soft murmuring sound, what has come down to us all as the still small voice that comes from within. And it is then that Elijah and God meet. God asks him, why are you here? I am the last, says Elijah, the last of the Israelites who hold to your covenant, for the rest have forsaken you. God instructs Elijah to go back the way he came, to appoint new kings, and to appoint another prophet, Elisha, to succeed him. And so he did. But Elijah also wasn't yet done with Ahab and his wicked queen, Jezebel. Back in Samaria, the capital city of the Kingdom of Israel, King Ahab is looking to score some real estate for his palace. He settles on a vineyard owned by a man named Nabot, which Ahab wants to buy and turn into a vegetable garden. Few Talmudic passages commented on the sin of turning a winery into, you know, vegetables, but that just goes to further demonstrate Ahab's depravity, or cluelessness. In any case, Nabot refused to sell his land, and Ahab returned to the palace climbed into bed, refused to eat, and sulked that he couldn't get what he wanted. Jezebel wasn't about to let her king come off looking like a weakling. Forging Ahab's signature, she sent letters inviting Nabot, the city's nobles, and a cast of criminals to a gathering. There she had Nabot murdered. And when Ahab found out, she had the king seize the vineyard. God sends Elijah to once again confront King Ahab, and to famously ask the king, would you murder and also take possession? Incredulous at the thought that the king of Israel murdered a man to steal his land, Elijah lays down a promise to bring disaster down upon Ahab. And, for good measure, that Jezebel herself should be devoured by dogs. For the Hebrew Bible reminds the reader, Never was there anyone like Ahab, who committed himself to doing what was displeasing to the Lord at the instigation of his wife Jezebel. But then Ahab, who was now sufficiently terrified, he repented. He tore his clothes and fasted, and God believed him sincere. God told Elijah that because of this, the disaster that was promised would not happen in Ahab's lifetime, but instead in his son's. That is, the loss of the dynasty established by Ahab's father, Omri. And indeed, that is what happened, as Ahab's three children, two sons and a daughter, would serve as the last rulers of the family dynasty, brought low by Ahab's sins. For three years, all was quiet. 
But then Ahab joined Judah, the other Israelite kingdom, in war against a common enemy. Despite a prophecy that he would die, Ahab charged ahead into battle where an enemy shot him with an arrow to the chest. Ahab continued the battle all day, but as night fell, he died. In accordance with God's promise, his dynasty did not last much longer. His oldest son took his place, but soon died in an accident. The next son was assassinated by the general of the army, Jehu, who became king. As soon as King Jehu was situated, he came for Jezebel at her house. She painted her eyes, says the Bible, and dressed her hair and stood at the window looking down at Jehu. The new king called for her servants to throw her from the window, which they dutifully did. Horses trampled her, and the king left her body to rot. His servants later reported that, true to the word of Elijah the prophet, Jezebel's body had been eaten by dogs. So what are we to make of this whole story? King Ahab ruled in the mid-800s BCE, but this story was written down some 200 years after the events. King Ahab was mentioned by the Assyrians, so we know that he was real and part of a big military coalition that fought them in battle. And there's no real reason to doubt a story that he married a Phoenician princess, a natural and gainful merging of royal households that would have benefited both sides. But the writers of the Hebrew Bible had particular bones to pick with Ahab, his dynasty, and just in general the entire kingdom of Israel. The writers were down south in the kingdom of Judah, and they had a vested interest in making everyone up north look bad, even going back a couple hundred years. Judah was pushing hard on the worship of Yahweh. They weren't yet at monotheism, in which Yahweh is the one and only God in existence. They were practicing instead what we call monolatry. Yahweh is not the only God in existence, but he is, or should be, the only God for the Israelites. So while it's fine for others to worship their gods, it is an abomination for Israelites to allow the worship of Baal in their kingdoms. No Israelite king should be building shrines and temples to other gods besides Yahweh. According to the biblical writers in the southern kingdom of Judah, this was the central sin of all those kings up north in the kingdom of Israel. And it always explains why disasters befell them. All those military losses and untimely deaths and assassinations and queens getting eaten by dogs, all of it was because they allowed other gods to be worshipped besides Yahweh. Their capital, Samaria, with its polytheism, was no match for the central temple of Yahweh down in Jerusalem, which of course is where the biblical writers are. So the writers are giving us a history of sorts, but one layered with a theological argument about the primacy of Yahweh. And the vehicle they use to make that argument is the prophet Elijah. He single-handedly saved the culture of Yahweh, what eventually became monotheism. Had he not acted, had he not prophesied, had he not been the intermediary between God's divine message and the mortal king on earth, then Jezebel would have turned the entire kingdom of Israel over to the worship of Baal, and Yahweh would have been wiped from the map. So what happens to Elijah? Elijah passes the mantle of his leadership on to another prophet, Elisha. Elisha insists on walking with Elijah to the River Jordan, where in every town other prophets come out to join the procession in honor of Elijah. When they reached the River Jordan, Elijah parted the waters and they went across. See, I told you he was second only to Moses. 
Suddenly, a fiery chariot led by fiery horses came roaring down the path, grabbed Elijah, and flew him up to heaven in a whirlwind. Unlike Moses, or anyone else in the Hebrew Bible, Elijah never dies and has no resting place. We don't know why the biblical writers wrote this account, but it elevated Elijah to the highest levels of Jewish folklore and mysticism. Elijah is said to move easily back and forth between the divine realm and earth, watching over our world and interceding when we need help. Because he sits intimately with God, in Jewish tradition it is Elijah who will announce the coming of the Messiah, bringing forth the age of redemption for all the people of Israel. That's why we open our doors to him on Passover, fill his cup with wine, invite him to drink and sing songs to him. Each time we invoke his presence, we hope that he is here to announce our redemption, or at the very least, to bring some welcome good news. Elijah is just one of the many prophets in the Hebrew Bible, and we'll encounter a whole bunch more. Because where Elijah speaks directly to the king, it turns out that the people of Israel are also in need of a divine intermediary. For the sins are adding up. One bad king after another after another rules the kingdom of Israel, and punishment comes due. After 200 years of existence, Israel faces a mightier foe than ever before, and courts disaster. That's next time. As always, I'm at jewidonno.com, and my email is jewidonnopodcast at gmail.com. Talk to you then. Lehitraot. See you later.